He this is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we talked to a media boss based offshore who staked the lot to buy the publication he worked for back in 2012. That's NBR owner Todd Scott. Now he's made some bold calls while he was in charge, making it online only and completely advert free. So has that paid off for him and the NBR? Also, we ask if bad economic news is a bigger and better news story for our media than the better economic news we seem to be getting right now, but which doesn't seem to make the same sort of high-impact headlines. But before all that, before political business as usual resumed at Parliament this week, there was another significant political departure, though plenty in the press pack seem to see this one coming. Is she in trouble now? Is the opposition calling for her to lose her job? Is is that likely? The opposition is calling for that. Look, it's a mess getting messier by the moment. It all goes back to that initial assurance where Casey Costello told Guy on that she had not specifically sought advice on freezing tobacco excise when she had. Now, <laughs> that was the Morning Report political panel on Friday reflecting on the fallout from RNZ's revelations about the Associate Minister of Health, which prompted Craig McCulloch to try and explain it like this. Uh, That if you had a long shopping order and on it you included, say, bananas and then someone asked you, did you specifically request bananas? I think you would probably say yes. You wouldn't say, no, 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 I didn't specifically request bananas. I I wanted apples and oranges as well. you spent a lot of time (laughs) on that analogy, haven't you, Craig? (laughs) (laughs) But while the opposition did want her gone over this, the New Zealand Herald political editor Claire Trevette, also on the panel, said that wasn't likely to be imminent. I don't think it's enough yet to um, topple her, basically. Casey Costello herself declined to appear on Morning Report, and the TVNZ Breakfast Show said they were told she was unavailable that morning on her way to Waitangi. But she was on the Mike Hosking Breakfast on News Talk ZB that morning, where the host asked her this. Uh, this is the politics of it. In other words, you're looking to do something different from the previous government. They don't like it, and they're out to get you. There's politics at play here, isn't there? Oh, definitely. And it's, it's, it's sad... Casey Costello insisted she wasn't quitting over this, but one MP was gone even before the new parliament kicked off this week. Uh, Good afternoon. We'll um, just read our statement that we put out earlier so that you've got some uh, footage of that and then we're happy to take any questions. Um, Gauri's Garman has been the leading voice in Parliament for human rights. That was the Green Party co-leader James Shaw back on the 16th of January at a special press conference called to announce the resignation of Green MP Gauri's Garman, and that was even before the official start of the political year. But the day the parliamentary year began, last Tuesday, James Shaw announced his own departure in a pretty idiosyncratic way, as Hayden Donnell now reports. Stuff's piece explaining the lay of the political land ahead of Parliament's first sitting day on Tuesday was mostly run-of-the-mill. There were tidbits about National and Labour's priorities and some remarks about Chris Bishop's distinctive grin. So far, so banal. But then, 14 paragraphs in, an apparent bombshell about the Greens. Almost offhand, it's said, Co-leader James Shaw's departure is also hanging over the party. It will lead to a months-long leadership selection process. Readers who made it to that point in the article might have been forgiven for saying things like, Huh? And what now? And James Shaw is resigning? Though it was stated like common knowledge, those of us who hadn't spent the summer relentlessly boning up on New Zealand politics might have been slightly taken aback to learn about the resignation of the co-leader of Parliament's third biggest party in the final spluttering paragraphs of a story about something else. 
But at least Stuff Scoop aged well. Audiences didn't have to wait long to see its slightly understated reporting confirmed. Here's TVNZ's midday news bulletin from the same day. Kia ora, good afternoon and let's get straight into some breaking news. Green Party co-leader James Shaw has just announced his resignation. Perhaps Stuff's journalists have sources inside the Green Party. Perhaps they picked up an early copy of the embargoed press release announcing Shaw's departure. Perhaps they're just adept at summoning messages from the political spirit realm. Whatever method they used, few journalists seem to be shaken or even slightly stirred by Shaw's resignation. Here's one news political journalist, Lillian Hanley, talking to Chris Chang immediately after that bulletin-leading announcement. No, this does not come as a surprise. There have been questions around James Shaw and whether he'll stay on as co-leader since the election. What we didn't know is exactly when he might step down, and the party, up until today, has been very tight-lipped. Over at Newstalk ZB, political editor Jason Walls was similarly nonplussed. No, yeah, as far as, as far as resignations go, it's pretty lukewarm. He's mm. resigning as Green Party co-leader, which, let's be honest, we knew this was coming. He said yeah. after the election what he was going to be doing was shepherding the party to a process where he would no longer need to be the co-leader and somebody else could step up. Admittedly, some pundits have been barracking for Shaw's departure. The New Zealand Herald's Fran O'Sullivan penned a January 20 column headlined, Is it time for Shaw to bail out? It argued he was lost in a sea of activists fast running the Greens brand into the ground while deftly eliding the fact that the party recorded its best ever result in October's general election. But some of us, namely me, were still quite surprised by Shaw's resignation and it would be nice if the political gallery would give me more notice of upcoming unsurprising news next time so I don't end up prattling about it for five minutes on the radio like a complete turkey. Thankfully, Shaw kept at least one resignation shock up his sleeve for the political press and everyone else. He announced his departure on Twitter with a three-word tweet, which we will now voice with appropriate gravitas. James Shaw? Gone, burger. For many people, particularly those not on X, that style of announcement would have struck them as slightly odd. But for one woman, it was the culmination of years of toil, the crowning achievement of a near-decade-long effort to entrench her favourite phrase into the New Zealand political lexicon. Newsroom political editor Joe Moyer first tweeted the word Gonberger back in 2016. Murray McCulley, Gonberger at the next election. Her tweet garnered just four likes and two replies, one of which was from her. Nevertheless, she persisted. Since then, Moya has gone burgered hundreds of people, concepts and ideas. Dr Ashley Bloomfield, gone burger. Michael Wood, gone burger. Louisa Wall, gone burger. Simon Bridges' leadership bid, gone burger. Rob Campbell, gone burger. Rob Campbell, gone burger, brackets again. Young Henry Cook, gone burger. Peace and Love, gone burger. Andrew Little, gone burger. Stuart Nash, gone burger. Barry Soper, gone burger. Social Insurance Scheme, gone burger. And Ian McKelvey, gone burger. Moyer's gone burgering has spanned six national and three Labour leaders. It hasn't always been popular. To take one sample reply to her tweet announcing Little's gone burgeration... Andrew Little is not gone, Burger. He resigned from politics. You are truly awful to make such a comment about a hard-working public servant who gave his time to serving the people. If you have nothing positive to say, say nothing. 
But despite the opposition, only once did Moya's commitment to the phrase seem to waver. In April 2022, she tweeted, Gone Burger makes it to Media Watch. My work here is done. Well, as it turns out, she wasn't done, and neither were we. Shaw's announcement shows an obscure term first recorded in the Kiwi slang dictionary in 1995 is now influencing the highest levels of our democracy. I asked Moya to come onto the show to reflect on what she's done. Kia ora, Joe, and welcome to Media Watch. Hi, Hayden. Nice to be here. Do you remember the first time you gone burgered and what was going through your mind when you wrote that word gone burger about Murray McCulley in 2016? I'd be lying if I said I remember it. My memory's pretty bad at the best of times. I actually had to get my colleague Mark to do some serious research for me to work out when I had started this uh, weird thing that it has become. A friend had mentioned that she thought actually that it might have been Murray McCulley and, and she was right. I don't really recall it and I don't really know why I started doing it. Because my next question here was like, was it like a eureka moment? Did you immediately know this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? But obviously it wasn't. <laughs> Uh, no, hard no to that. <laughs> Definitely wasn't one of those. I have like a few sayings and they're just things that I say all the time. And yeah, I think it was just a turn of phrase. I think if you go back beyond Murray McCulley, there's sort of a few tweets um, where I had used Gomburger not as a sort of way of talking about resignation or retirement or whatever, but I talked about, I think there was a tweet from the Australian Open Tennis about, you know, some of the big players being Gomburger. Yeah, and it just stuck. So it was obviously in the lexicon, but you 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 decided that you were going to do it every time. Was it the second time you tweeted it or was it the third? Like, how did it catch on with you? Oh, I wish I could answer this, Hayden. I honestly don't know. I don't think it was particularly noticed or particularly liked on Twitter. It was just this weird thing that I was doing. And then I don't even know what point, hopefully you've done some research, I don't even know what point it started to become like a real thing and took off and, and sort of started getting lots of likes. It's very hard to say, but I think that we can safely say that it's sort of like a snowball that was small at first and gained more and more snowflakes, and now it's almost a raging avalanche, isn't it? <laughs> Those are your words, not mine. <laughs> You feel like you, it's an avalanche, though? It's almost a movement. People seem to be... I mean, James Shaw has now gone burgered himself. He has. Um, I did have a laugh about that with James. He he did tell me that he, he wouldn't have been able to live with himself if um, I had done it to him, so he decided he'd do it to himself. Um, although I would like to point out that his gone burger tweet of himself has, um, as of this morning, got uh, 2.6 thousand likes. Uh, my quote tweet of that, which was just well played, because let's face it, it was, has only got 502 likes. So he's really outplayed me there, that's for sure. Um, the same thing happened, to be honest, with Sir Ashley Bloomfield. I did uh, go on burger, Sir Ashley, and um, he replied, actually, here burger until 29th of July with a winky face. He got 2.8 thousand likes and I got just 403. It's not a competition, though. <laughs> Look, I just looked those two up this morning. I haven't kept a record of this. Mm, a likely story. Is this the pinnacle? Is this the zenith of your achievements? Are you going to continue now? No, but not for the reason you probably think. Um, I have just decided over the summer that I don't really need Twitter in my life anymore, or X, whatever it is that we actually call it. Um, other than the, the James Shaw um, well-played tweet, I haven't actually tweeted since the end of last year when I... Finished up at Parliament and got on a plane and got out of the country for a few weeks. Um, James Shaw is kind of a nice end to that, really. So you've decided to join the, the ex-exodus? Not an exodus. I'm just going to be a lurker. 
Right. I mean, but there is an exodus. There is some, a lot of people are leaving X. Is it because of Elon Musk? (laughs) Oh, look, I just think, um, you know, it's a busy job. There's enough going on without dealing with the backlash that you get from that, which is increasingly the backlash is worse than like the fun bit. So it just seems like a good time to say, see ya. You've received a lot of backlash for your Gomburgering over the years. One response to your Andrew Little Gomberger tweet said, it's disrespectful, this is a public servant, how dare you? How do you feel about those criticisms and how do you respond to them? Oh, I laugh hysterically every time. I mean, for every person who tells me I'm disrespectful and um, that I should learn how to do my job and all the rest of it, I mean, there's tons of them. Um, You know, there's three other people who say, I come to Twitter just to see that you've done this tweet and I love it. Um, Do you think that people see it as a pejorative? That, that if, you, if you've been Gomberger, that's somehow a mark of shame? Where I, I almost see it as more of a neutral term. It's 100% neutral. I think if anything has proven that, James Shaw choosing to Gomberger himself is probably it. You know, MPs do Christmas cards um, for a lot of the press gallery at the end of the year. There's often a reference to it in Christmas cards from MPs. And these are the people who are, you know, at threat of being Gombergered and, and they love it. And I've had MPs who have left who have said, I'm glad you Gombergered me. I would have felt left out if you hadn't. So, you know, I don't think that people take it in the way that a small anti Gomberger brigade seem to think um, it is being taken by these, these MPs. Yeah, it's sort of become a movement. It's become a rite of passage for any political exit now. I think you've even co- expanded into concepts and ideas like peace and love, Simon Bridges' <laughs> leadership. But I don't know when you expanded into concepts, but... Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's evolved, like all good things. Mm. I thought that you were, you might be stopping because you're moving to RNZ, and we do have a bit of more of a stuffy code of contact, conduct here, the newsroom, with its free and loose uh, approach to things. It, that's Are you going to get some Gombergering onto RNZ? Are you going to button up your Gombergering now that you're on the national broadcaster, or soon that you're on the national broadcaster? Uh, later this month, I'll be um, coming back to RNZ, which is very exciting. I have got Gomburger into uh, RNZ before. Um, I have done it on live crosses. I think uh, the one I can remember best was with Jesse Mulligan in the afternoons um, one day. I can't remember who exactly it was about. It was a day where I don't even remember the live cross because everything was happening all at once. Um, so it's definitely already been in there. Look, I'm happy to continue the Gomburger madness um, on radio. Yeah, just kind of done with the whole X thing. But no, that's got nothing to do with, with switching jobs. It just seemed like a good opportunity with um, the end of the year and a new year and, and new things. Well, I'm not going to make a commitment to do it every time. I feel like that would... Um... Will you rule out? Will you rule it out? <laughs> Will you rule out doing Gomburger every time? Oh, don't do this to me. <laughs> We're playing the rule in, rule out game. Okay. Well, thank you, Joe. I appreciate... I appreciate your time here and I appreciate your commitment to continuing to say Gomberger every time a politician resigns and doing it on the radio. Thanks very much. Thank you. That was Joe Moyer, the principal deployer of the tag Gomberger when breaking news about political resignations and sackings. And she was talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell. Now this week, as we heard, the outgoing Greens co-leader James Shaw used Moyer's favourite phrase himself to declare himself Gomberger on social media. Joe Moyer is the political editor at newsroom.co.nz, but not for long. Later this month, she rejoins RNZ to be the political editor here.
if you're a news media boss or proprietor and you appear in the news yourself, it's not often good news. More often than not, it's because something's gone wrong at your company or that you've messed up somehow personally. Though back in September last year, it wasn't easy to work out what kind of news this was. I was just actually getting some refreshments and some warm uh, treats for the boys just down the road for the new office and I was getting them from Countdown and this uh, massive hoof of a man was abusing the staff and stealing alcohol and uh, <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking but I... Uh... That was Todd Scott, the owner of the National Business Review, in his own social media video explaining how something funny happened to him on the way to the NBR's new office on Auckland's Queen Street. When he saw someone stealing beer from a downtown countdown, he tackled them and tried to perform a citizen's arrest. But it was all in vain, as Kerry Woodham told News Talk ZB listeners at that time. The store manager was telling him that the police, understandably, he's disappointed. Todd Scott later told the Herald he was a bit embarrassed by all this, even though a local police officer praised his courage. But on Reality Check Radio, Todd Scott didn't sound too sorry and said it wouldn't have happened where he lives, in Fiji. You know, uh, Fiji might be third world, but New Zealand is lawless. Wow, Todd. Well, uh, thanks for giving us firsthand your experience there. Um, It's got the attention of a lot of people because I guess you wonder what you'd do yourself in that situation, right? I mean, you would. Yeah, I I guess I can understand, you know, what the police are saying. You know, they don't want anybody else to get hurt. They don't want vigilanteism. But if more people with the ability to do what I did could, without breaking the law, less people would break the law and get away with it. Now, when news media bosses get unwanted media attention, people usually say that comes with getting paid the big bucks. But it was the big bucks that Todd Scott agreed to pay for the NBR more than a decade ago that got mentioned in many of the news stories about him subsequently. And when owner Barry Coleman decided in 2009 to put up New Zealand's first ever online paywall for subscribers, Todd Scott became the NBR's chief executive. After that, Scott seemed to struggle to pay for the deal that he struck with Coleman to take control of the NBR, a deal he later described as a fleecing. He sold his house to do it, living in a motorhome for a while with his partner in life and business, Jackie. Now, there was also a period in 2018 where Todd Scott took to Twitter to issue blunt instructions to NBR journalists. He also dumped all commentators with political connections around that time and fed out at advertising and marketing agencies, declaring he wouldn't deal with them anymore and that he didn't even need them. Instead, he put paying subscribers at the heart of the NBR's business, and when COVID struck, he killed off the printed weekly edition of the NBR altogether and went online only and fully ad-free. Now, that was a bold call, but a risky one. And after the NBR marked 50 years in business in 2020, some in the media business wondered just how much longer it would last under Scott's stewardship. Accounts of the volatility that have seemed to surround the NBR for years have vanished in more recent times. And it's hired new reporters recently, including two in Australia. And the staff that MediaWatch spoke to lately say all is well and seems stable. So on a trip back to New Zealand this week, I asked Todd Scott, What's the plan for his second decade in charge at NBR? It's a thankless 
position to be in to own a media company when you are committed to having no control over the content. And I have none, zero. And people don't understand that. They, they don't. They just, oh, come on. You know, when I was floating the idea of, you know, maybe taking on some business partners, investors, or even just selling out to a better owner, because... You know, I'm I'm not the best. Uh, I, it's just me right now. If somebody can come up with a better plan, I'm all for it. But um, my experience was people wanted it for the power, and th- what they have to understand, there is no power. I have no control. So that's what I mean. It's a it's a very thankless business to own. You make a profit, you put the money back in again, and, and keep hiring good journalists. That's what I'm doing. Jackie and I actually can't afford to come back to New Zealand. They look at us and they go, "Oh, you're living in Fiji. You're living the high life." We don't actually get to catch up with our friends like you do. You know, we don't get to go to nice restaurants like you do. We went to Fiji because we we did lose all our money. Our, all our money went into our house. You know, I got quoted as having a you know a, a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar motorhome. Well, actually, it wasn't. It was three hundred and forty five, and we built it. Jackie designed the inside of it, so we had a plan that we'd hit the road. Um, and we'd hit the road for as long as it took for us to get into Fiji, but it just took a lot longer than anybody anticipated. And we ended up actually living in a street called um, Ruapehu Street in Aotearoa. Now, I challenge anybody to be brave enough to go into Aotearoa and actually drive down that drive. That's where we lived. We stayed there for, for 10 months on, on land my cousin owned. So I guess a bit of an irony that the, you know, the guy that ended up publishing the rich list every year was um, driving the opposite direction of being in the rich list somehow. I, I bet it was such a, you know, an incredible experience. Like, and, and that's how I see challenges in life, an incredible experience to better understand and become ultimately a better, calmer person. I mean, did we take some risk? Damn straight we did. I mean, back in 2012, I mean, there were plenty of people then saying, ooh, the media is a bit of a sunset industry. Um, Did you hope that you might buy something that in the end would be an asset that you could sell on and might make you some money? Or was this really about business journalism? You were determined to be a part of it. I was on a fairly um, attractive um, profit scheme with Barry for uh, at least two of the years that I worked with him. And um, there'd be a, you know, a ceremony between him and I and the, the cheque would be exchanged and and I would just look him in the eye and shake his hand and say this is great I really appreciate it but don't forget what I really want is to own this business you know it's like if, if you were ever fortunate enough to play in the All Blacks and you were ever fortunate enough to play in the All Blacks and become the captain and if you were ever fortunate enough to become the captain of the All Blacks and then buy the All Blacks you would do whatever you had to do to do that well, there were reports back in, I think, early 2023 that uh, you might be willing to, or even offering up a stake uh, in the company, even uh, whispers that I think you had denied at the time that it was uh, News Corp and Rupert Murdoch across the ditch that might be uh, interested in uh, taking a stake that didn't come to anything. But is that something you're still thinking no. about you would be prepared to do or you want, no. you want to be the sole owner? No, I'm almost, I'd almost taken off and now with disdain, to be honest. No, no, but I... <laughs> I don't know. I, they, it has to be somebody incredibly qualified to do the job that NBR, NBR and its members require. It's a very simple business, but it takes somebody with discipline who understands they have no control over the newsroom. You own it, you pay the bills, you back them 100%, but you don't have a say. And by the way, pull your head in on social media. <laughs> um, yeah, it just wouldn't make sense for anybody in my current mind state to, to, to make an offer because it just I wouldn't be able to justify it. It's because I don't want you to buy it. We just need our member subscribers to buy it. Well, back in 2012 when you initiated the deal to take control, 
even back then people were saying, well, in the digital future, the media is going to be a tough business. Um, but then I guess no one could have foreseen at that point that our major biggest paper publisher stuff, or Fairfax Media, that used to be ended up being sold by its Aussie owners for a single dollar, you know, to one person. Yeah, I, I disagree with you. I don't think that was surprising at all. And I, I think there's still carnage to go. I think that by and large, media companies are mismanaged. They're mismanaged because they've got shareholders. You can't do a good job of a media company if you've got shareholders. Shareholders want a return. A good publisher and owner will just do what he has to do or she has to do to ensure the newsroom has the resources to be the best they can be. If we come back to like the business model of NBR that you put in place, so you made the call, pretty bold one, to discontinue the print uh, edition back in 2020, but also you know, to, to go ad-free. So no, we're going to make this all subscriber-based, the service for subscribers who pay for it. Why did you make that decision to stop? Because if you've got subscribers and ads, aren't, aren't you better off? You know, that's a commercial risk, uh, sort of foregoing a stream of revenue that could have been really useful. I just knew nobody else would do it. But still, that means you're getting less revenue. You're cutting off a source of revenue. It I must be a good reason just, no one else was doing it, you know what I, I mean? It's a really simple business. It's not at all complicated. And, I'm, you know, I almost don't want to share the secret because it's just so simple. Focus on the consumer and not the client trying to get in front of your consumer. Bugger the client. Your client is the listener or the reader or the watcher. Your client is the person that you're engaging with. Mm, and so the ads are a distraction or they, they, a compromise. I mean, come on. Have you ever looked at an ad on TV? or if, Did you rock up to the movies like I did with a mate and you still get there and you have to watch an ad and you're going, you're going look, I've paid a premium for this. Why am I having to experience this? Mm. If you're a premium product, you shouldn't be exposed to something that makes you feel icky. Just this very week, uh, Sky put out a press release saying that they've now um, introduced advertising to their premium service, Neon. And they put out a press release saying it's been a great success. McDonald's came on board and other big clients. So are you saying long term that's a mistake because your subscribers paying for a premium, in this case entertainment product, are going to get fed up with seeing those ads? And No idea, mate, because I just don't think about it. The things that are troubling media today, the, the lack of advertising support, that, that just isn't something I think about. I, we stopped it. We kicked it to touch three years ago. The fact that the government's not handing out money so much anymore, that's sad. But we didn't take any of it in the first place, so it didn't affect us. So all the things that are affecting mainstream media aren't affecting the NBR model for one simple reason, because, bless them, our member subscribers, they are all of our paymasters, and my team know that. It's not me and it's not Jackie. Our paymasters are our member subscribers. It's that simple, and we only have one. And how many subscribers does NBR have? <laughs> you know I'm not going to answer that. When we spoke five years ago, you had a bold goal to sort of double it, and, of course, everyone has uh, targets and uh, so Colin, on. I'm but... sure you did your prep. Uh, and I think at the time we had, I said to you, we've got to get to, when we get to 10,000, we'll be the undisputed champions of business news in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And let me just say, we knocked that bugger off a few years ago. You talked about public support there, and I remember there was a time when NBA had little banners up there on the site saying things like, you know, not funded from the public purse. Um, do you not do that because, you know, you feel it's a compromise? You know, my team are really proud that, you know, that they can, they can say that we looked after them over COVID. And we've grown the team since. When I saw the breakdown of how that money was distributed to media organisations, 
was close to throwing up. So many brands that I had respect and I couldn't believe how creative they were to meet the criteria and I, it just it broke my heart. We've weathered a storm and, and I'm incredibly confident that, you know, that MBR will have a very solid future and I'm confident that the reason it will is because we made some outrageous calls and we're just lucky to get a number of them nailed. Can this model work Going ad-free, subscriber-only as income for news organisations that aren't just, um, you know, zeroing in on, on business. But the danger that lies ahead for anybody that's taken the approach that Jackie and I have taken is there is only one threat, and that threat is from corporate cancellation because we don't have advertising. There's only one metric that shows that you are literally supporting the NBR, and that's that you have a paid subscription. But that's all I'd say is just that there is a risk if you have income coming from nowhere else and it is solely from subscriptions. Individuals, solid as, incredibly loyal. I mean, I love them to bits. Another call that you made that was an interesting one was a few years back you said you didn't want any um, sort of political pundits or people with political ties. You weren't interested in that kind of commentary anymore for the NBR. Later you hired a few opinion writers, sort of former broadcaster types. Then um, change your mind about that, so it seems, and, and drop that as well. Do, have you changed your mind about the value or purpose of um, having opinion in a platform like NBR? Well, I think I've, I think I've, I've provenly um, changed my mind. I mean, I think when we did that interview that was, as I said, six years ago, subsequently, as you said, we actually changed our mind and I changed my mind again. I know how many people cancel. I, I know who they are. I know what subscription they, they have, whether or not it's a, a monthly premium, a smartphone only. I, I know. And so when I'm looking at that and I'm losing people because they didn't like our opinion pieces, I'm like, why the hell have we got these opinion pieces if that's the reason people are bloody cancelling their subscriptions? And by the way, isn't that just a distraction on the job that our member subscribers have paid us to do? And I sat down with my fabulous co-editors, um, Calder and Hamish, and it, it, it didn't take long for us to all agree that it made more sense to stop having opinion pieces, refocus the resources that we had in the newsroom on business news that people could use. And the money that you saved from the people that I, were personal friends of mine, Rachel Smalley, Duncan Garner, Marty. Um, so that was hard. But the money that we saved, I didn't put it in my back pocket. That money, by the way, just hired a, a new uh, a new senior Australian journalist. We've got two of them now exclusively working for NBR based in Australia. We'll have three before the end of the year. Plus, we're on hire at the moment for two new seniors. So all I did is I just used that money and thought, well, I, if I just focus on business news, you can use drop the opinion that people were cancelling our subscriptions for anyway. I mean, you've got to, it's not rocket science. It, <laughs> I'm embarrassed that I didn't do it sooner. That was Todd Scott, who owns the NBR National Business Review, along with his partner Jackie, who, as we heard there, is also its chief financial officer. And Todd was talking to me there from Auckland this week before heading back to Fiji, where they're based. Now, recently, Todd Scott was one of several New Zealand media bosses answering questions from the New Zealand Herald about the current and future state of the industry here. And Scott said one of the biggest challenges is to retain New Zealand's best talent in journalism as media companies' balance sheets tighten up. So next week here on Media Watch, we'll hear more from Todd Scott about that and other big issues for business coverage and local media in 2024.
Melbourne Morning Report just before 7am last Tuesday, RNZ's business editor Giles Beckford wrapped up his early business update like this. Locally, all eyes and ears, uh, analysts and economists anyway, on the speech to be given by the chief economist of the Reserve Bank, Paul Conway. It's on the broader issue of post-COVID effects on monetary policy, but there has been a promise that there will be some brief comments on recent data. Remember that uh, GDP and inflation numbers both undershooting the RBNZ's expectations. But it was more than just a few analysts and economists eagerly awaiting Mr Conway's address. Several media outlets actually live-streamed it. Pretty unusual for mainstream media to get excited about an economist on a webinar. Well, Giles explained it like this before the bird call. People waiting to hear if there's any signal of a change of mood from the unexpectedly hawkish tone of the RBNZ, which was on view in November. That might, of course, point to an earlier-than-expected start for cutting rates. Back at half-past eight. But when Giles went back for the later update after 8.30 on Tuesday, he didn't seem quite so pumped up about that imminent Reserve Bank speech. What water's gone under the bridge? Because we've got this sense. weird situation, right, where there's months in between decisions on the official cash rate. Well, let's not go there. Uh, other <laughs> Why than, not? Other than to say uh, whoever thought that one up probably needs to uh, rethink it. Now, three months between uh, meetings of the Reserve Bank is really quite uh, impracticable, to say the least. In fact, it's uh, downright stupid. Well, as Giles mentioned earlier, the latest inflation rate data came out just the previous week, eagerly awaited at the time by News Talk ZB stand-in host Tim Dower. Economists, fairly confident, it seems, will come in below 5% at last, 4.6, maybe 4.7 for the annual rate. We'll get that number to you the moment it's out on ZB. Last year, bad economic news about stubbornly high inflation and rising food price stats seemed to be topping the bulletins whenever it came out. Monthly reports from New Zealand's largest credit database, Centrix, about debt and mortgage repayments increasingly in arrears, also yielded panicky stories about a possible surge in mortgagee sales. But last week's data showed inflation had dipped below 5% for the first time in ages, thanks to the smallest annual rise in the consumer price index for over two years. Now that did get some coverage, such as this on TVNZ's One News last week, The cost of living is easing, with figures out today showing the lowest annual inflation rise in two years. And RNZ's checkpoint led with the news like this. It's official, inflation is deflating. On Friday, the editorial in The Herald said the pieces are falling into place for a much improved economy in 2024, just not quite yet. Hang in there, it's always darkest before the dawn, The Herald said. But all this easing doesn't seem to have made quite as much of an impact in the media as rising prices and inflation did on coverage of the cost of living last year. And just last Thursday, One News was telling its viewers this. More New Zealanders are getting behind on payments. In December, more than 400,000 people fell behind on credit payments and the number of mortgage accounts past due exceeded 20,000. Both telco and mortgage arrears now back to pre-pandemic levels. Well, that sounds bad. But this was also based on the latest monthly report from that outfit, Centrix. And the number was about the same as it was in June last year, when Nicola Willis warned that a mortgage bomb could blow up the economy. And the figure the month after was actually 20,000 fewer. And in that One News report this week, the main man from Centrix said that actually the season was the reason for the latest relatively modest monthly uptick. From a consumer perspective, um, the start of the year is always quite difficult because people tend to spend money and incur credit prior to Christmas and it then comes back to bite them early in the new year. 
Within the last month, surveys have recorded rises in business confidence and food price inflation fell for the fourth consecutive month and supermarket supplier cost growth also hit the lowest point for 18 months. But all this easing didn't make as much of an impact in our media as rising inflation and prices did on the coverage of the cost of living crisis last year. Now last year there was of course an election in which the cost of living was a huge political football But does that alone explain why more recent good economic news isn't as big in our news right now? I asked NZME multimedia business journalist Madison Reedy, the host of Markets with Madison, hosted on the New Zealand Herald website. You must not be reading the Herald enough, mate. (laughs) Because last week when that CPI story came out, we did, from my count, at least five stories that went online, including a podcast, a preview ahead of the data, reporting on the day, analysis, uh, market reaction at the end of the day, and then also following up with Conway's speech this week. And shout out to my colleague in Wellington, Janae Tibshraney, who does incredible coverage of, I think, all of those stories were hers. So we're definitely still treating inflation as one of the largest issues that our economy is battling with. That's not going to go away this year. But I'd also add that just because a headline doesn't necessarily have inflation or food prices or, you know, that term cost of living crisis in it, that doesn't mean that it's not actually part of our wider inflation coverage. So we also have all of our reporting on mortgage rates, term deposit rates, banking competition, the supermarket duopoly, massive stories. All of that plays into that sort of inflation fight coverage, right? But I do think maybe people are getting tired of the word inflation. It's becoming that word. I mean, I think even we're getting a little bit sick of it. So you may just see it less. Mm -hmm. But I did talk to, say, another business and finance journalist who I won't name uh, saying, oh, look, last year I was seeing political correspondents, even political editors turning up at unveiling of economic data and press conference and stuff. Don't see that now. And interesting comment from when last week, when those inflation figures came out, Kim Mundy, ASB senior economist. I do wonder if New Zealanders will talk about inflation cooling off as much as they did on its way up. Uh, Even if uh, dinner table chat inevitably returns to house prices, you can be assured economists will be watching the drop just as closely. But The news editors and bulletins and so on, do they respond more to their sense of what what people will be moved by rather than what's economically significant? My take on the response I think that that was was because we were in the middle of an election cycle. And I was saying all of last year that it was an economic election with the cost of living at its core. And elections always just create uh, news hype cycles. Um, So, yeah, you're saying in an election cycle... You know, news media will respond to the political energy that goes into, you know, bad or worrying economic news. Well, we have to, right? I mean, we can only report on what the politicians are saying to us and then sort of back it up with the economic data or not to sort of hold those policies to account. So if that was everything that politicians were doing last year, very similar to the state of the economy, we don't get to pick it. We just have to report on what it is. Sure. So, But in general, if I just kind of cut to the chase, in mm-hmm. general, is there something about bad or worrying economic news make for a better, more clickable, more engaging story than, you know, news about incremental easing and improvements, such as, you know, the, the figures on business confidence, CPI and inflation that we've had in the last uh, week or 10 days? Any news is largely ranked, whether it's business, economic or, or political and otherwise. It's determined by size of relevancy to an audience. 
So, for example, a natural disaster where, you know, the safety of thousands of people and homes are at stake, huge news. Something like maybe Elon Musk's compensa- uh, compensation package at the moment is, you know, not such large news unless you're sort of my, my niche investor audience. But in the, in the case of inflation, it affects everyone, whether you know it and whether you like it or not. And it also makes it difficult for businesses to survive. So the impact is enormous. So, yeah, it getting worse is certainly a bigger I wouldn't say better, but bigger story in a new sense. When something's increasing or easing, easing isn't actually necessarily a better or more positive news story. In the case of inflation, that 4.7% print that we had last week, that is inflation still going up. So until inflation gets down between that target range for the RBNZ of sort of 2 to 3%, then we might come out with a celebratory title saying we've won the war on inflation. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we did that. So uh, we'll certainly celebrate it with you. There's a lag in those figures too, right? So inflation figures coming in last week showing under 5%. That actually relates to things that have been filtering through in the previous weeks and months, right? So the stats coming in is just a confirmation of of stuff that's sort of in the past. Does that also explain why it doesn't feel like it's as newsworthy? Yes, and if I could launch any campaign today, Colin, it would be for, for Stats New Zealand to pretty please come out with more more frequent inflation data. I'm sure they'd love to. If you look at, you know, people in the US, they get inflation data monthly. We only get ours quarterly. And by the time it comes out, it's pretty much well gone. So it's not always relevant to how the economy is actually going at the time. We always try to make sure to put that disclaimer in, but it's also the only data we have to go off. So this is where it's interesting about your point about uh, how much attention we pay to the likes of Paul Conway and Adrian Orr and, and the things that they say in the likes of webinars, because often the data is so far behind that we actually need their more up-to-date measure and take on the economy to give us a read on what they're going to do. And just to finish, uh, you did say, look, if, if I really pay attention, I will see this stuff, particularly in the Herald by you and your colleagues. But I did read Friday's Herald editorial, which made a point of telling readers the pieces are falling into place for a much improved economy in 2024. Just not quite yet. Hang in there. It's always darkest before the dawn. So we might see in the Herald and elsewhere that that message is being put forward by editors and that will be reflected in the news we get. Most certainly, if the Reserve Bank's actions do what they are supposed to, which is bring inflation back down within its target range, which allows them to ease off that rate accelerator and take some pressure off borrowers, we will write that story. That's NZME multimedia business journalist Madison Reedy, the host of Markets with Madison, which you'll find on the website of the New Zealand Herald. Well, that's all from Media Watch for this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media next Wednesday with Midweek Media Watch after 9.30 on Nights with Emile Donovan. And then we'll be back again with Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.